I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel 2, and our short little series on these opening chapters of Daniel. In Daniel 1, we saw that Daniel and his companions had been carried off from the land of promise, from Jerusalem to Babylon, because King Nebuchadnezzar, in the beginning of his reign, 605 B.C., carried off some Jews to captivity. That was almost two decades before he destroyed the temple. But some were carried off already in 605 B.C., and Daniel apparently was among them. And Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were uh, trained up in the ways or the uh, school of the Babylonians. Come to Daniel chapter 2. It's a long scripture reading, so fasten on your seatbelts here. But it's a magnificent passage. Daniel 2, the word of the Lord. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation." They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants to dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious And gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven, 
Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for his for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have made have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Ariachum, the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Ariach quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile." As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, 
but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. God's holy word. Let's ask him for his blessing. Our Father in heaven, as we bow before your word, we pray you'd speak to us, your servants, that you would strengthen us in the hope of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Congregation of Christ, as we look out at the culture in which God has placed us at this time in history, we, we try to evaluate at times what has brought us to this point, what are the, the factors involved, what, what are the, the developments that have occurred that have created the culture we're in. And, and clearly one of them, you couldn't understand where we are this morning without recognizing that we're living in an age that has been identified as the information age. No different periods of history receive names, speak of the the Roaring Twenties or the Middle Ages or whatever it might be. We speak of the Industrial Revolution when there was a movement from from farms to factories and from the country to the cities and so forth. But but the Information Age is a a move, as we've seen, from the, the normal industries to an economy that's wrapped around information, information, information technologies. And so, obviously, in this digital age, information is ubiquitous. We have access to more information than anybody else has had in the the history of the world, right, on this planet. John Stone Street, in his book on culture, writes, Older generations may remember life before 24-7 access to the Internet, but kids today don't. They've never known a quiet world. Every day their lives, of their lives, they encounter more information than people who lived in the 15th century would have learned over the course of their entire lives. Each day, 500 million tweets are sent, 4 million hours of content are uploaded to YouTube, 4.3 billion Facebook messages are posted, 6 billion Google searches are conducted, and 205 billion emails are sent a staggering amount of information at our fingertips, and that's only counting what's online. It's amazing, this culture we live in. We're all beneficiaries, aren't we, of this digital age. We appreciate access to information. We like YouTube videos so we can 
fix our own car, whatever it might be. But there's a downside, isn't there? There are things that trouble us about the information age. For number one, there's a crisis of authority, right? If, if there's so much information, if there's so many opinions, well, who's right? That's the big question, who's right? As you sit in your doctor's office, do you trust the doctor in the office or do you trust the doctor online? What you've read, what if they're in conflict? Who do you trust? As young people grow up, they, they wonder, well, who's got it right? Should I, should I bow to my parents or should I listen to my pastor? Or is it the voices of all my peers and all their messages that I should be listening to? And then there's the whole limitation of information in terms of its real value. We're told that, that, that knowledge is power, right? But if endless studies say that doing drugs are going to kill you and people keep doing drugs, then what's the power of the information? If, if endless content is found about how to have a good marriage and marriages keep falling apart, then what's the real value of the information, right? And then there's the question with all this knowledge, with all this information, more than you or I could possibly read or watch in a lifetime, there's the question, what really do we know? Does the information age answer the most important questions of life, like the one everybody's asking, where are we headed? Are we headed anywhere? How does this all end? Do we just fizzle out and get wiped off at the stage of, of history? Everybody wants to know the future. If you get diagnosed with a disease tomorrow, you want to know the future, right? If you're a young person, you're thinking about, about the future, career and marriage and so forth, you want to know how's it going to go, right? If you're, if you're from Ukraine, you want to know the future. How does this end? Some people make their money at predicting the future, market analysts and intelligent, intelligence agency officers and medical doctors predicting the next strain of the flu. But does anybody know the future? People want to know the future so that we can control the future or at least prepare for the future and take countermeasures against the future. But the information age can't tell us the future, or can it? Maybe now with artificial intelligence, someone can gather up all the information and analyze it properly for us. Artificial intelligence promising Robots who can diagnose your disease by smelling your breath. But then people say, after they do that, they might decide humans aren't fit to live and rid the planet of us. Is that the future? This morning, God shows himself in Babylon as the only revealer of the secret of history. And the first way he does that we see this morning is by humiliating the wisdom of men. By humiliating the wisdom of men. It's here in Daniel 2 that we get a peek inside of the palace. Glorious King Nebuchadnezzar reigning over the world's superpower, the kingdom of Babylon. And he was on his bed thinking about his kingdom. We know he faced some severe resistance in the early years of his reign against his expansionist ambitions, that he was apparently thinking about such things as he lay on his bed and fell asleep and had dreams 
or nightmares, and they're troubling him. He saw this great statue constructed of various metals, and then he saw this stone out of nowhere destroy it. What does it mean? Now, we like to be a fly on the wall in palaces. We, we humans have an interest in tabloid newspapers to hear what the crown thinks about Prince Harry and all that sort of thing. We, we like it when emails or voicemails get leaked and we see what's really going on. And what's really going on? Well, what we learn is that no matter where we look, people are just people. And in the, the upper regions of society, there's a lot of pettiness. There's a lot of cursing. There's a lot of foolishness. Turns out that people are just people, no matter where you look. But in this palace now, we're a fly on the wall, and we see the king calling in his important people, university professors, scientists, CIA, that kind of thing. He's calling in his magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and Chaldeans. He's calling in the people who are supposed to be able to interpret dreams. And, and apparently those who can do something about whatever the issue is can, can call down curses or do witchcraft or uh, see the alignment of the stars and know when to act and all this kind of thing. He, he wants people who can analyze the, the intelligence and who can show his kingdom the way to escape whatever's going on. And as he calls all these people in before him, they say, well, just all right, tell us the dream and we'll, we'll tell you what it means. And the king says, oh, no, not this time. No, not this time. You tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And he gives them a few words of encouragement. He says, if you like waking up with all your body parts attached and a roof over your head, then you should do this. Because if you don't, I'm going to turn you into a sack of body parts and burn your house down over you. And they say, this is crazy. This is crazy. No king, no ruler, no supreme has ever asked of his people to tell him what he dreamed. But you see, the king, he knows these fellows. He knows that they're pretty good at propaganda and political spin. And that's very useful when when we're fooling the masses, but I'm not going to be a victim of your lies. Actually, King Nebuchadnezzar knows what many have not figured out in our information age, what the Bible teaches, that all men of themselves are liars and more vain than vanity itself. So Nebuchadnezzar says, the way I'm going to know that you're not lying to me is you're going to tell me, first of all, the dream that I dreamed. And all the government employees say, hey, this is not in our job description. And it's not in our job description because, verse 10, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Verse 11, there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. And there it is. There it is. The greatest men of Babylon, the PhDs, the professors, scientists, scholars, all the greats, Confess the absolute helplessness of men. No one but the gods can do what you say. There's the limitation of man's knowledge. There's the limitation that that would not be overcome by the information age. Only God knows what you've dreamed. And the gods don't dwell with us. They're not subject to us. We don't rule over them. And here the Lord is, he's pulling back the curtain, isn't he, for us to see. 
in his word, the helplessness of man's wisdom and man's false gods. There's only one in all the universe who knows all things because he's ordained all things and he rules all things, and it's not the wise men of Babylon. Most powerful king on earth doesn't have access to it. Now, this is to be a great encouragement, isn't it, for the church? You think of the people of Daniel's day uh, who, who would soon as a whole group, be living in exile in Babylon and would be awed by this, this glorious kingdom. Remember the hanging gardens of Babylon become one of the, the seven wonders of the world. This was, a, this was an expanse of a glorious kingdom. They would feel threatened by, by the intellectuals, by the powers of Babylon. And what's God saying to his church? He's saying, if you look past all the splendor and all the trappings, If you actually get to be a fly on the wall inside the palace, you know what you'll figure out? They're just men. Weak, limited men. Many scholars of our age have set out to demythologize the Bible, but here God demythologizes the scholars. They are not legendary. And then you notice that the king is furious. He's furious and he sins out. The word to execute the wise men of Babylon. What another unwitting confession of the worthlessness of all the schools of Babylon. I mean, these are the best scholars of Babylon. These are the most sophisticated men. These are the wisest. And the king is saying, in effect, you're useless to me. I'll just throw you all away. But above all, King Nebuchadnezzar is angered because he wants what? Well, you notice the transition there. Between verse 11 and verse 12, they say there's no one who can do this but the gods. Verse 12, for this reason the king was angry and very furious. Which suggests that Nebuchadnezzar is mad essentially because he wants to be God. He does not like the limitations of not knowing. He wants to be in control. This is is actually the great frustration of every life outside of Jesus Christ. We want to know the future because we want to control it. We want to be the ones in control of our lives. And the promise for so many, and the God that's being worshipped in our culture, with the information age, is this thought that we can get there. We can gather enough information to control our lives, to control the future, to know where all this is going, and to map the course of it. You see many people in this world who are angry and bitter. Angry and bitter. What's the cause? They want to be God. But for those who will humble their hearts before the Lord, they will find great joy that they're not God and that God stoops to them. And that's the second thing. God reveals himself as the only revealer of the secret of history, not just by humiliating the wisdom of men, but secondly, by answering the plea of the humble. Secondly, by answering the plea of the humble. Nebuchadnezzar is undone by his bad dream. But notice Daniel is at peace. Verse 14, then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. Somebody has written how easy it is to terrify strong men outside of Christ. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. How easy it is to terrify strong men outside of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar is deeply troubled. Daniel's life is threatened, and Daniel is able to reply with counsel and with wisdom. In fact, it's a 
it's, it's really encouraging, isn't it, to read throughout the book of Daniel that, that wherever Daniel and his, his three companions get into to trouble, into crises, God supplies them with grace and wisdom to answer and to act. God does not leave his people on their own, which is an encouragement for us this morning. So Daniel gains time from the king to figure out the dream. He hurries home. He hurries home to his three friends And what does he do? He says, we need to pray. Verse 18, we need to seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that we might not perish with the wise men. The contrast between the wise men of Babylon and wise Daniel is remarkable, right? The wise men have no recourse. The king says, tell me what I dreamed. And they try to talk him out of such a crazy request, and if they can't talk him out, then they can only run for their lives. But Daniel goes home, and he goes over top of the head of King Nebuchadnezzar. He goes to the king of kings and has access to the throne room. The wise men say, there's not a man on earth who can tell you. And the gods, they don't dwell with men. And Daniel goes home, and he says, Lord, I I don't know, but you do, and I have access to To you, the true God, the revealer of secrets. We forget sometimes, don't we, that that we have access to the throne room. We should know this far better than Daniel knew it, right? Because now Christ has come and and we have, uh, Hebrews tells us, right, we have this, this new and living way open to us. We may, with boldness, with expectation, come to the throne of God, which is for us a throne of grace. We have access not simply to the great minds of our culture or to the White House or whatever it might be, but we may come before God to the King, the God of heaven. And if Daniel was so bold as to ask wisdom in the Old Testament, how much more when we read in James 1, count it all, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you face trials of various kinds, And then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Now, God hasn't promised that he's going to reveal to us all the details of the future, right? It's not because he can't. But he's going to reveal to us all that we need to know. He has revealed to us all that we need to know in his word. And so we read that it was revealed to Daniel, the secret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel, verse 19 says, so Daniel what? So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And then what follows there, verse 20 and following, is a kind of psalm, right? A a praise song to God, a, a prayer of thanksgiving. And you know, the Holy Spirit didn't have to include that for us. The Holy Spirit did not include Daniel's prayer to God. He didn't need to include Daniel's prayer of thanksgiving. He could have just moved right on to verse 24. Skipped all those words and you and I would have never known it. But the Spirit of God saw fit to record the praise. And to show us that Daniel paused to praise before he went to visit the king, 
He stopped to bless the name of God and to confess that he was beholding not to King Nebuchadnezzar for his mercy of giving him a few moments to learn about the dream, but he was beholding to God, the God of heaven. Praises God for his wisdom and for his might. A God who, since Daniel knows the dream now, a God who removes kings and raises up kings. A God who rules over the kingdoms of earth. Puts it all in perspective. Nebuchadnezzar's not a God. Nebuchadnezzar's going to die. Nebuchadnezzar's just one more human actor on the stage, God's stage of human history. God puts him there for a while, then God flicks him off. God is the God of heaven. And God is glorifying himself here in Babylon and making us aware of his greatness. Sometimes we're too aware of what people around us want, so responsive to their desires and want them to be pleased with us and don't want them to be angry and all of that. How refreshing it is here that Daniel... Though threatened by the most powerful man on earth, pauses to praise the Lord. Doesn't it put it all in perspective? Doesn't our worship this morning realign our perspective? After all of our fears of people, of customers, or bosses, or tax collectors, or legislators, come here this morning and we lift up our heads to heaven. And we say, you are the God of heaven. You are the God of heaven. Every worship service is a momentous occasion, right? Because we are acknowledging you are God, not them. Not them. We bow before the God of heaven, saying there's no one like you. All the scholars of our age have no ultimate wisdom. They offer no ultimate solutions to our troubles. Their path is ultimately a way of death. But God, you've given us Jesus Christ, and 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ has become for us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So in our homes and in our hearts and among the happy people of God, we give him praise. God, you are wisdom for us in Jesus Christ. And as one writer says, the Spirit here spreads out the praise of Daniel across the pages of our Bible to, quote, to warn us not to rush from our solution to the next item on our list. No, it's time for worship instead. You know, it's the anecdote from the the life of uh, the famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was speaking to a woman, and uh, she was on the verge of, of conversion. And she burst out with these words, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if the Lord saves me, He shall never hear the end of it. If the Lord saves me, he'll never hear the end of it. Amidst all of our fears in this world and our struggles in this culture, let us not forget to worship the God of heaven. Give him thanks for what he did for our four brothers here in Daniel 2. Give him thanks for what he's done for us. And there's people across the ages. If we learn to fear God more than men, to worship God over men, Then we learn the way of peace. So Daniel goes before the king, and you notice what he says. He says, your wise men were useless. They couldn't tell you the dream. But there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has told me your dream, not because because I'm wiser than anyone else. Not because I'm a better person. 
Daniel's giving all the glory to God. We ought to remember, right, as we, as we go from worship services back out into the world, and we know now that we know the truth, and, and they, they are literally ignorant. They don't know the truth, that, that we ought not to march forward with a spirit of conceit, that we're so smart and you're so stupid. But we should remember what Titus 3.3 says, that we ourselves were also once foolish, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, he saved us. And not because of righteous works we've done. It would be a sad thing if the obstacle to the world coming to the wisdom of Jesus was our pride and conceit. Instead, we sing, I once was blind, but now I see. And we invite the world to know the God of heaven through Jesus Christ. But then finally this morning, God proclaims the meaning of history. God proclaims the meaning of history, thirdly. The dream is of a great statue. David, uh, Daniel says, King, you, you dreamt of this mighty image, head of gold, then silver, bronze, iron, clay, was awe-inspiring, but then you saw this stone. It was cut without hands, and it came, and it smashed those feet. It toppled the statue. It ground the statue to dust, and the, and the contents of that statue blew away, but the rock grew to fill the whole earth. You, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. You have quite an expansive kingdom, but only because the Lord put you in this place. After you come other kingdoms, Daniel doesn't say it, but they've often been interpreted as the the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and then of Greece, and then of the Romans. And of course, it was during the Romans that God set up his kingdom upon the earth through Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that all these various kingdoms that are mentioned, whatever they are, are all part of the one statue. And in the end, all the kingdoms of men are just part of the same thing, the kingdom of men. Doesn't matter. Whether it's, as Herbert Veldkamp put it, whether it's the shining gold of liberal humanism or the might of the Iron Curtain. He was writing back in World War II days. Doesn't matter what kingdom it is, it's just the kingdom of men. But what's a stone cut without hands? Well, that's a, a stone that, that, that man has not quarried. This is not a human building project. This comes from above, comes out of nowhere, as the kingdom of Jesus Christ does. Begins so small. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth, hung up on a Roman cross in nakedness? How pathetic, many thought. But oh, the power of the resurrected Jesus to turn the world upside down and to conquer lives and to set them free from Satan and to gather for himself a people progress of the kingdom, like leaven through the dough, like a small mustard seed, the glories of Jesus Christ being preached throughout all of the world, millions of saints in heaven, millions more upon the earth. The kingdoms of men, they seem so big, they seem so strong, but we've been inside the palace now, and we know they're just men. And in their moments of truthfulness, they say we're just men, only the gods 
Only the gods know the future. And we know there's just one God. And though he is mighty, he does dwell with men, doesn't he? He does dwell with men. He sent his own beloved son into this world, our Lord Jesus. He stooped down to us. He's given to us the wisdom of heaven. Ronald Wallace writes, This is the Christ we have to proclaim today to this world of uneasy dreams, to its shaking and falling dynasties, to its crumbling empires, to its petty tyrants with feet of clay. In the New Testament, Christ is himself described as a stone that will make men stumble and a rock that will make them fall, that brings doom to those who take no account of it, and that shatters all Goliaths who defy the armies of the living God. He is the precious cornerstone which must define the shape and fill the supreme place within all earthly empire building. And woe to the foolish builders if they allow themselves to be tempted to reject him in order to fulfill other plans. So we announce the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what men say. It doesn't matter what they say to us. They're oohed and they're awed by technology and by information and by artificial intelligence. And we say, but it's all of men. And there is a God in heaven. And only he reveals the secret of history. Who is that secret of history? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Son of God coming in human nature, dying for sinners, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven as we celebrate this past week, pouring out his renewing spirit, and coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is death. We don't know that just by reading Daniel 2, or even just by reading the New Testament, there are human scholars that know the scriptures in the original languages better than you or I ever will. And they're fools. It's not just to know these words that the kingdom is of Christ that lasts forever. It's to believe them. Nebuchadnezzar bows down before Daniel, but he's awed, but he's not converted. He's awed, but he's not humbled. He's awed, but he doesn't cry out as Daniel did for mercies from the God of heaven. question for each of us this morning is this, are we building our own empire or trusting in the kingdoms of men or have we from the heart embraced this reality there's nothing else that lasts and in the end nothing else that matters? Have we confessed our sins and cried out for mercies in Jesus Christ? Or are we still dreaming our dreams and suffering our nightmares? And looking for men to show us the way. We must cultivate the graces of meekness and humility and not rely on our own wisdom. We must bow our hearts before the Lord Jesus. And as we do that, then we don't run off to some mountaintop to set up a monastery and escape the culture. But as we see, God set Daniel and the three companions in places of authority in Babylon, even to, as Jeremiah would say, to 
work for the prosperity and the peace of the city in which you live. So God's people are on the earth right now, and they're all in culture. They're all in societies, and they're called to serve the King of Kings and the Kingdom of Jesus Christ where they are. So we can go and vote in our culture. We can run for the school board or for the presidency. We can seek to be an influence and to love our neighbor in that way. But in all of that, we're serving King Jesus and confessing that our great hope is not the wisdom, the strength, the kingdom of men, but the kingdom of Christ. May Daniel 2 give us courage in these days and comfort, no matter what happens, no matter what the information age or artificial intelligence brings us. What we know is the reality that there's only one God, the God of heaven, made known to us through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. May it bring us comfort. May it challenge us to live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. May it correct us when we've been intimidated by men. May it teach us to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.